Well, we head into the Word of God today. We're heading into 1 Timothy 5. We'll be there for the next couple of weeks as we see what the Word of God is going to teach us while we look at the church family. But wonderfully, we'll be finishing off 1 Timothy in chapter 6 in a couple of weeks when we're back in church in person. After 17 months of online church, we'll be reopening the church building and we'll be seeking to come back in person to praise God, to pray before Him and to learn from His Word together on July 25th, just a few short weeks away. So do be praying for that opening and also watch out on social media and your emails to see more details about when we open the church. But for now, we're heading into 1 Timothy 5. So grab your Bibles, have them open in front of you. And I'm going to start today with a statement. And I think it's a really important statement that we grasp right at the beginning before we head into our passage today. Here's the statement. The church is a family. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the phrasing here, household of faith, describes a family, one that centres around faith in Jesus. It speaks of love shared together, the care for one another, and the devotion collectively toward King Jesus. We read in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. We're a family through salvation in Jesus, and that salvation grants us the privilege of being called children of God. He is our Heavenly Father, and through faith in Christ Jesus, we are His children. Now, like all families, there is a right way to approach one another, and there is a wrong way, a way that will damage relationships. Like all families, there are those in our ranks who need special care, emotional and financial support. Like all families, the family of God is made up of diverse and complicated individuals. And therefore, it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 now turns his attention to encourage a proper care of the family of God. Specifically, Paul writes to Timothy, who's part of the family and who helps lead the spiritual family church in Ephesus, He writes to give him instructions as to how to care for the family. But more than that, he writes to give us principles in how to honour church family here in Lincoln or wherever you're watching and listening from. And as we go through the passage today, there are two key things I want us to pick up on. These are two incredibly important things. Here's the first one. We should never shy away from rebuking sin in church But most importantly, there is a right way and a wrong way of doing so. Let me say that again. We should never shy away from rebuking sin in the church. But most importantly, there is a right way and a wrong way of doing so. The second key thing is there should be no doubt, no question, no debate and no argument over whether widows are to be cared for. Widows must be cared for either by their family or by the church. They should receive proper and full care as a specific command from God. And so what you see in these two things is as the family of God, there is a right way to approach one another, a right way to deal with sin and a right way to deal with those in need. And the instructions we find for that right way are found here in 1 Timothy 5. So with these things in mind, let us head into our passage, 1 Timothy 5, and from verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. 
We see here, as we enter into the text of chapter 5, that Paul is still considering the issues that have plagued the church. Remember, we've been considering sound conduct, sound doctrine, and godly leadership, and how it should look like, and what it should look like, and how it operates. The idea of someone needing rebuke, though, would suggest that Paul is still referring back to chapters 1 through 4 and the matters of false teaching, either through the proclamation of myths or through apathetic lifestyles that care not for the gospel and the righteousness of Christ. And the word for rebuke here that's used in verse 1 comes from the Greek word epipliso, which means harsh or even violent. And it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And in context of 1 Timothy, it's likely referring to the use of words. Do not use harsh or violent words. Essentially, in rebuking of others, harsh and violent words should never be used. Instead, we should encourage, coming from the Greek word parakelio, which to, means to encourage or to appeal. And parakelio is very close to the word parakletos, which is used to refer to the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit strengthens and encourages, so we, through the Word of God, are to strengthen and encourage. Sinning individuals should not be attacked with words, instead they're to be guided through encouragement. However, we do need to deal with the elephant in the room, don't we? On the surface, it seems like Paul is commanding no rebuke to take place. However, what about Titus 2.15? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Or even 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. From these two verses, it seems that correction and rebuke are encouraged. In fact, we're to do them in confidence. So what is actually going on here? Well, simply put, verse 1 has concern for the manner that the rebuke is given. It should not be using words to tear down or malign, or words that would cast doubt or cause harm, or words that would cause someone to be verbally assaulted. Instead, the Christian is to, with confidence, rebuke with words that will guide, encourage, and cause the offending party to seek confession, repentance, and restoration in Christ Jesus. Too often in the church, behaviours are left unchecked because rebuke and correction are deemed harsh. Yet here we're given the indication that correction done in a manner that is both godly and holy in intention can be a rebuke and an encouragement. And Paul helps us out a little bit here by applying this principle to each person in the family that is the church. Firstly, we have here older men should be treated like fathers. And I don't want you to see this as some flippant thought process. It carries great significance. Exodus 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. To confront an older man's sin, one must handle it as gently as possible, not using overly harsh or violent words. And I want you to note here, the sin still needs to be dealt with, but it's dealt with in the right way. Second, younger men should be treated like brothers. There should be no competition, no hierarchy, no superiority amongst younger men of the church. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive them. And notice the need to rebuke, but also the need to forgive quickly. The younger men of the church are to be like a brotherhood, tight together, correcting one another, yet also forgiving each other. 
Thirdly, we have older women being treated like mothers. Again, this is not a flippant thought, Exodus 20.12. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honour the older women of the church, show them great love and devotion as you would your own mother. And then fourthly, we have younger women being treated like sisters. And clearly here, there is a hint towards sexual purity and for the younger women to feel secure and protected. Proverbs 6.25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And this is the great sadness in the church today. The younger women do not have their fellow brothers in Christ desiring their protection, their honour, their growth in Christ and their trust. And we need to wake up to this issue in the church. We're to treat younger women with the love and devotion that we would show a sister. They're not objects to be desired, rather sisters to love and care for. And notice the entire spectrum of people in the church is covered in verse 1 and 2. Every single person is to be treated like a family member in all circumstances, but especially when you need to bring a rebuke against a sin or a correction to a wayward life. The family of God need not fear rebuke, nor worry about correction being overly harsh, for if it's done properly as it should be in the household of God, then we're working together to bring God glory by delivering up the church as one that is holy and pleasing to him. Now, as we move into verse 3 onwards, we, we shift a little bit from the whole family of God to a specific focus on one group of individuals in the family, and that is the widows of the church. Verse 3, honour widows who are truly widows. Now throughout all of scripture, the Lord clearly sets out this special care for women, both protection and provision. Specifically, widows must be especially cared for. And take Isaiah 117 as our example. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We're to plead the widow's cause, we're to see her plight and we're to resolve to cover and care for her needs. And when we were going through our Mark series, we learned in Mark 12 that widows in the New Testament are often poor and financially struggling. And it was Ignatius in 100 AD that said, Let not the widows be neglected. After the Lord, be thou their guardian. The English word for widow quite literally means a woman whose husband has died. However, the Greek word for widow is a little bit more expansive. It's the word chera, which refers to a woman who has been bereft or left alone. It doesn't necessarily suggest how she's been left alone, just simply that she is left alone. It could be due to her husband deserting her through divorce or because her husband has died. And as we go through these verses, I would encourage you in the context that we have to see widow as referring primarily to those who have lost their husband, whose husband has died, but not exclusively to that definition. We'll see that there are women left alone in all spheres of life. We are primarily considering those whose husbands have died, but there are those that have been left alone for other reasons. And we're commanded to honour these widows. And the word honour means to care for, to support, to treat graciously. We're to meet their needs, including any financial needs they have. However, the church is not obligated to care for all widows, but rather those who are truly widows. And in the coming verses, we'll begin to learn what that phrase means. What does it mean to be truly a widow? Verse 4. 
But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. We see here that if a widow has children or grandchildren, they are to take the primary role in support and provision. It displays godliness within their family, for their parents gave them life, caring for them, nurturing them, and it's now time for the children to repay this and care for the widow in her time of need. And the response that this shows is pleasing to God. It pleases our Saviour to see the family care for the widow. As we've already seen, this care may be financial, emotional, spiritual, or even practical. Now, I remember at the age of 13, my brother about 16, when my father passed away. Yes, we were mourning the loss of our father, but later in life, I began to realise that at that moment, my mother was mourning the loss of her lifelong partner, her husband. In an instant, when that happened, I knew that my role had changed. I was no longer the carefree teenager who sought to play football as often as possible, climbing the ranks of popularity, or at least hoping, in high school and seeking weekends to be fun-filled and video game focused. My role changed. I had a duty to protect, to honour, to support my mother, who is now a widow. And to this day, my brother and I have sought to obey that command. It doesn't matter if that means packing up a van, driving six hours to move house, or whether that's the umpteenth time that I've had to repair a piece of technology. It is my biblical duty and responsibility to care for my mother, who is a widow. It's not the church's responsibility to step in when I am called to serve. It is not the church's responsibility to sure up and support when I feel like I need to go out for a jolly. It's my responsibility to undertake as the primary role in support and provision. I say primary, for there are times where it's simply not possible to support. And my mother's six hours away. If her washing machine blew up, it's pretty impractical for me to drive up and to try and sort it out. Therefore, I rely on the church family to step in as a secondary support to help in the situation. But as long as I live, by command of verse 4, I am to take primary responsibility wherever possible for the care of my mother, who is a widow. And if you're in the same circumstance that I am, whether you are a teenager in your 20s, in your 40s, in your 60s, you carry primary responsibility and not the church. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now the widow who is left alone, who has no children or grandchildren to care for her, for that widow, the church is to be primary support and provider. Do you get this? To be the primary support means that the widow truly alone is to have no financial concern, no practical concern, no emotional concern, no spiritual concern, for the church steps in and ensures all needs are met. And here's the kicker, to be able to know that these needs are there and they are to be met, the church needs to know about them. And we should not put widows through the embarrassment of asking for help. We should know what they need help with. Why? Because we treat older women like mothers. And we would not dream of leaving our mothers in a place for asking for help. And so you see how as a family, as we come together and treat one another properly, it outworks into those who are in need, specifically widows. 
Sadly, I think the church has much work to do here. We have several widows, whether in the English translation or the Greek in our church here in Lincoln. In fact, I'm pretty sure we could say in every single church in the UK, there'll be a widow as part of the family. Yet why do so many feel alone or struggle to make ends meet or practically have to deal with matters they find difficult? Because the family or the church has ignored the divine command to honour the widow. And that is with great sadness that I say that. Importantly, for the church to be the primary support, though, the widow must be a believer who has set her heart, set her hope on God. She is to be active in her faith, continually praying and continued in communion with her Saviour. Yet in contrast, the widow who is self-indulgent does not qualify for the church's help, for she is dead in her own sin. She cares little for right and wrong, seeking only to have her desires met and therefore does not qualify for the church's help. Do you see the staging here? Primary support, children and grandchildren. Church steps in when there is no children and grandchildren. But those who qualify are for those who seek after the Lord. Those who are disqualified are those who desire selfish gain. Let's continue in verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Timothy is to command such careful widows so that the church would be without reproach. Whether it be the church, the family, or the widow herself, the goal is the same, to be above reproach, to be in right communion with God, to be in obedience with his commands, and to be faithful to the life he calls us to lead. Nobody should find fault or be able to criticise the church, especially when it comes to the care of widows. The church should be known as a sanctuary to those in their greatest time of need. If we disobey such commands, failing to provide for widows, either through the family or through the church, then it is as if we were an unbeliever denying the faith. It doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation, for that is one in Christ through faith. Rather, it's a denial of the compassion and love that we see in Christ. As our conduct slips, our doctrine has been diminished. Note the word provide here in verse 8. It means to plan ahead. It connotes a forethought to ensure the needs of the widow is met. It's not this last minute thing. It's a planned response. We are either prepared to care for widows or we're in disobedience and worse, like an unbeliever. For even unbelievers know the need to care for widows. And I don't want you to just take my word for it because, you know, I live in that personal circumstance in my own family. I want you to see the example of Jesus here. John chapter 19 and from verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus, as he was being crucified, as he was being nailed to the cross in complete agony, looks upon his mother, who he now sees as a widow because his father has passed away. He is now not there to protect his mother. He is not there to give primary responsibility and support. And he's not able to provide as he was doing day by day. And therefore, with forethought, before he dies, he provides. He prepared in advance the care of his mother. He denied himself and the focus on him and the pain that he was suffering. And he shows great compassion, love and sincerity by ensuring the care of his mother. 
Folks, let us not say and let us never use the excuse that it's a bit too complicated, a bit too hard, or our needs need to be met first before the widow is cared for. See the example of Jesus here in agony, close to death. He does not care for himself, but for his mother who is a widow. We must provide in advance, ensuring by the example of Jesus, that the widow's needs are met. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 3 through 8 concentrates on the care for widows. But now from verse 9 onwards, Paul focuses on those widows that would serve in some form of ministry capacity. It's recorded in church history that in the early church, there was groups of widows who served the church in official capacity. They would care for the sick, teach the younger women, and they would active in prayers for the church. And key to this group is that not every widow was added to the list who would officially serve. They were, if you will, certain requirements that needed to be met. Now, some of these widows would have been cared for family, as per the verses we've read. Others would have been completely alone and therefore cared for by the church, as we have already seen. But this roll call was not about support, but rather about ministry service. And there's certain requirements. Here's what they are. Number one, widows were to be older than 60, likely indicating some form of retirement and therefore more time on their hands to serve. Number two, they were to be the wife of one husband. This doesn't mean that they are not remarried at some point. Rather, they were to be known for faithfulness and sexual purity. They were to be a one-man woman. We've already seen the contrast of this, the other side of this, the flip side of this in chapter three, where elders and deacons were to be known for their sexual purity. And then number three, they were to be known for good works. There should be evidence of godliness expressed outwardly in good deeds towards others. And if there was any doubt as to what these good works are, Paul actually gives us a list. They were to bring up children, raising godly children in a godly home. It doesn't mean that the widow must have been a biological mother, but in some form of capacity, whether fostering, adopting, caring for orphans or her own children, she was to be known as a mother figure. Second, hospitality. As in chapter 3, this was specifically to strangers, caring for those who she doesn't know and using her home to welcome them. Number three, washing the feet of the saints. A display of a humble heart, willing to do the dirty work to care for others. Number four, care for the afflicted. Helping those in need and in distress, whether that be practical, emotional or spiritual. And then number five, devoted to good work. She was to be known for diligently seeking out good deeds to do. I think you could argue that these attributes are not just for widows, but for all. Think about it. If they were to be known for these attributes after they turned 60 so that they could be added onto the roll, you would have to ultimately put these things into practice long before. These may be qualifications for a ministry roll call, but ultimately they are encouragements for each one of us as to how we are to live our lives as faithful believers in Christ. Verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying that they should not. 
Younger widows, so those under the age of 60, were not to be enrolled in this ministry roll call, this specific uh, official way of serving. Where an older widow could be single-minded for the ministry of Christ, the younger widow may struggle here. Paul is concerned that she will vow to serve the church, devoting to remain single, yet possibly in the future find herself in the position of wanting to remarry. If she does, she would have to break her pledge, her vow before God, and therefore bring upon herself condemnation. The commitment to love and serve and obey Christ wholeheartedly in this single-minded way would be overtaken by the desire to remarry. And it's in this emotional battle that then we see secondary issues come to the surface and become a matter of concern. Because nothing constructive comes from just visiting others for the sake of it. In fact, negative and sinful behaviours rise to the top. Gossip and nonsense talk has potential to grow, leading the younger widow to become a gossip and a busybody, sticking her nose into matters simply to get the latest gossip. And I really liked how John MacArthur phrases it in this situation. It takes a serious-minded, mature, godly woman to minister in homes to both women and families. I want to repeat that again. It takes a serious-minded, mature, godly woman to minister in homes to both women and families. A distracted and emotionally struggling individual cannot serve the church in all sincerity. And that is why they were to not be added to the list. Which leads into verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Instead of being added to the roll call, younger widows should remarry, raise children and manage a household well. The goal would be to avoid any reproach, any temptation or accusations. Now you might think that this is an extreme response and even an overreach by Paul, but the encouragement is in fact an Old Testament principle. However, more than that, look at verse 15. Some have already strayed after Satan. In the church, Paul had recognised that some had already fallen. They no longer served Christ and they now follow Satan. This was the real problem in the church. Now, before we head into the final verse, notice that Paul doesn't command remarriage. He encourages. This is not about be married or else. It is about how best to honour Christ with your life. And if you're in danger of dishonouring due to a broken vow, that situation needs to be corrected. Into verse 16 and our final verse today. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The argument or the teaching comes full circle. The family take primary responsibility when they're not able to or they're not there. The church takes the primary responsibility. If done correctly, all needs are met for the widows of the family of God. If done incorrectly, the church labours and burdens and therefore are unable to actually genuinely care for all those in need. This is a serious matter deserving of a serious and obedient response in the church. Now we've come to the end of our passage and I would hope that the applications this week are fairly obvious, but let us just spend a few moments driving home how this passage should impact us in the coming week. And here's the first one. We are a family. We are a family. Did you get this? Fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters, we are a family united in Christ for the common goal of his glory. We're to live like a family. We're to know each other, care for each other, support each other, build one another up. However, in the context of our passage today, let me say this. 
as a family member, don't do something, say something, or behave in a certain way that would be deserving of a rebuke. If we each lived in the light of the gospel before Christ, seeking to honour and obey him, there would be no need to rebuke and correct. However, we do sadly sin against one another. So rebuke gently, repent meaningfully, and forgive quickly. The Bible gives authority to rebuke and correct, but it also seeks us to be humble and gracious. So as a family this week, let us seek to love one another in all humility. Let us seek to do no wrong toward one another. Let us seek to fly the flag of Jesus as a jubilant and celebrating family of God, for this is pleasing to our Lord and Saviour. Secondly, widows must be cared for. Widows must be cared for. There is no question about this. Widows must be cared for. If you're a child or a grandchild of a widow, you need to wake up to the responsibility and your privilege to lovingly care for the widow, to financially support, to practically help, to emotionally encourage and to spiritually lead the widow. And if you have a widow in your family, when this sermon is over, and don't delay, when this sermon is over, pick up the phone, go and visit and ensure her needs are met. More than that, do it every day, every week, every month, every year, ensuring that all her needs are met. But church family, you know that we have widows in our church and you know the ones that we need to care for. When was the last time that you cared for them? When was the last time you took responsibility as a brother or sister in Christ to care for the widows of the church. Now don't, don't pass the buck onto the leadership, we'll come onto that in a moment, but when was the last time you cared for them? When was the last time you took them out for a meal? When was the last time you lovingly cut their grass? When was the last time you lovingly ensured their groceries were bought? And when was the last time you sat down with them and read a passage of scripture with them? We equally need to wake up to our joy and privilege of serving the widow. So this week, Head to our membership list, go to the church directory, pick up the phone and start serving the widows of our church. And as a leadership, we will endeavour to lead in this matter and we will leave no women in this church ever feeling alone. Thirdly and finally, we are to encourage godly women to serve. We're to encourage godly women to serve. What a wonderful opportunity we have in the church to encourage our older women to serve the church. What amazing wisdom they have to share with our younger women and with our families. What fantastic witnesses they can and should be. And so we should encourage our older sisters to serve. We should look to them as mothers who know how to care for the church. And we should prepare with them some training in ministry and support to encourage the church to be faithful. And if you're an older woman in the church today, we pray that you are faithful in Christ and we encourage you to serve. We have mums who are needing words of encouragement. We have women dealing with anxiety and worries. We have single women feeling alone and we have women desperate to be disciples of Christ Jesus. So we call biblical God-honouring, gospel-believing women to grab the opportunity for the service of the kingdom and diligently and humbly seek to serve the people of God. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that we are indeed children of God through Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you for that position, that you look upon us as children, as co-heirs to the throne, because we are children along with the Son of God. And Father, we thank you and praise you that we can be a family together, serving one another, caring for one another, loving one another, building up one another. And Father, we pray that we would do so. We would pray that we would not do anything towards one another that's deserving of rebuke. We pray that when we do need to rebuke, that we would do so gently. And Father, we fundamentally, at our core, seek your help so that we would serve the widows of the church. Father, if there are widows within families, let them support and serve. If there's widows in the church, let us support and serve. Let there not be a single woman in our church who ever feels alone. And so, Father, we pray this in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen.